gather together on the Lord's Day. And as we continue in our worship, if you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. As we continue our exposition through John's Gospel, we pick up in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, our focus this morning will be verses 9 through 15. We finished up at verse 8 last time we were in John, but for the sake of context and reminding ourselves of this conversation with Nicodemus, let's read together beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 15. This is the Word of God. John 3, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that You are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that You do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And we'll be picking up at verse 9 this morning. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but He who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let us unite our hearts and go to Him in prayer as we pray for His gracious aid and help in the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You this morning for the clarity of Your Word that though it speaks many things that are offensive to the natural man, You have condescended to us sinners by sending Your Son to make plain the way of salvation through Christ. To make plain to us the absolute necessity of being born of the Spirit to enter Your kingdom. To have eternal life. To be forgiven and cleansed of all of our sins. To have union with Christ only comes through that sovereign and gracious work of Your Spirit blowing upon us like the wind with sovereign power to make us alive when we were dead. Father, we thank You that salvation is in Your hands and not in ours. We thank You that it does not ultimately depend on our willing but that rather in Your grace You have come to renew our wills so that we come most willingly to Your Son. Father, as we come again to this passage on the new birth, one of the clearest we have in Your Word on this subject, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. Lord, as we think of the Lord Jesus' analogy of Your Spirit blowing like the wind and us hearing the sound of it, And seeing the effects of it, Lord, we pray that we would see 
more of the effects of Your Spirit working in the hearts of Your people, but also, Lord, in particular, of those who are strangers to Your grace. Father, we pray as Gary already prayed for our children that Your Spirit would make them alive. We pray for our unbelieving family and friends. Lord, our unbelieving spouses, unbelieving children, siblings, parents, grandparents, we pray that they would experience the work of Your Spirit in their lives. Lord, we are powerless. We have a role to play in speaking Your Word and Your Gospel, but we recognize that ultimately it rests with Your sovereign grace. Help us to be faithful, to speak Your Word. Help us, Lord, to trust You. Help us to be faithful in prayer, praying for You to be merciful to sinners. Lord, we pray that You would instruct us this morning in this passage. We pray that we would be instructed not only in our minds as we grow in knowledge, but also that that knowledge would have an effect upon our hearts, upon our lives, and upon our wills, the way we order our lives. Help us, Father, we pray. We thank You for Christ who is our perfect mediator, our perfect prophet who teaches us plainly of the way of salvation, the way of eternal life, the way to live as a Christian, to please You, Father. We pray that You would be magnified. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up in this section this morning on the subject of the new birth. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in John. If you remember from verses 1-8, through Jesus is instructing here the teacher of Israel about the necessary work of God in the heart of a sinner to enable that sinner to enter or see the Kingdom of God. And we're picking up this morning in our exposition in verse 9. And I would ask you, especially for this first part of exposition, in particular, please have a copy of God's Word open so that you can see for yourself how God teaches us and instructs us here. Picking up at verse 9, in the midst of this conversation, we've already seen something of Nicodemus's confusion, but here it comes plainly to the forefront. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus is asking, how can what you've just said be possible? Now again, remember, Jesus has just declared to Nicodemus in no uncertain terms that in order for anyone to enter or see the Kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit must first sovereignly give to the sinner a new birth from above. Membership in the Kingdom of God is not the result of one's physical lineage. It is not the result of the will of the flesh or the will of man. It is the result of God's sovereign and free grace. And Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, stands mystified by this saying. His presumptions and his assumptions run so deep that in his unbelief he marvels, how can these things be? Because Jesus' words directly contradict everything that He has always assumed about the Kingdom of God and membership in that Kingdom. Remember, Nicodemus is a son of Abraham. No doubt, like Paul, circumcised on the eighth day, he is a scrupulous and devoted follower not only of the law, but also of the traditions of the elders and the fathers. And more than that, his station in life, he is a ruler and a teacher of the Jews. I mean, as a, a Jew, he's got all the accolades and all the qualifications to make his membership in the kingdom seem like a given. And Jesus comes and opens up the Scriptures to him and he says, Nicodemus, everything you are counting on to enter the kingdom of God is useless. Because Nicodemus, what you have missed in the law that you claim to be a teacher of is the necessity of not only being circumcised in the flesh, but of being circumcised in the heart. That work of God spoken of in the Old Testament in which God the Holy Spirit cuts away the old man and creates in its place a new man. And so Jesus rebukes him in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? 
Now, that's a stinging rebuke to a revered teacher like Nicodemus. And Jesus is highlighting here in very plain language how inexcusable Nicodemus' ignorance is. Remember, Nicodemus is not a layman. Nicodemus is not just part of the common people who would not have had much access to the law of God. He is one who sat in Moses' seat. That was his role in Israel. He, he's supposed to be one, like Paul describes in Romans chapter 2, he's supposed to be one who's an instructor of the foolish and a guide to the blind, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge. But instead, he himself is in darkness. And you have Jesus, on the other hand, having no formal training, having no pedigree of learning, and Jesus is taking the teacher of Israel to school. And by the way, I'm going to say more about this in our doctrine section, but I'll just mark it here. Beware, Christian, that you don't equate one having learning and even a teaching position, don't equate that with them necessarily understanding spiritual truth. Nicodemus doesn't know these things because he hasn't experienced them. He's been educated according to human knowledge, but he has not come to a knowledge of the truth. He's had access to the law, but he has not had his mind renewed. That's a very dangerous place to be. More accountability. James' exhortation is fitting. Do not many of you become teachers, for they will undergo a stricter judgment. And so Christ, having rebuked Nicodemus for his ignorance of his doctrine, Christ then goes on the, the offense here and positively defends the trustworthy source of his doctrine. Verse 11. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, it's at this point in the text that Jesus shifts from speaking in the singular to now speaking in the plural. He says, we speak of what we know and have seen. And he says, and you, plural, you can't tell in English, but in Greek the pronoun is plural, you, plural, do not receive our witness. Now, when he says, you, plural, do not receive our witness, I think that's pretty obvious who he's talking about. He's talking about Nicodemus and the Jewish establishment that he's a part of. It's not just Nicodemus here who's blind, but Israel's establishment as a whole that he's a part of. But who is the we that Jesus is referencing? When he says, we speak of what we know and have seen. I'll give you a few, a few options. And the one that I take. Some think that when Jesus here says, we speak of what we know, they think that Jesus is aligning himself with that long line of earthly witnesses who have, before him had spoken the word of God. Like the Old Testament prophets, Moses, even up to John the Baptist. Others think that when Jesus says we speak of what we know, He's referring to Him and His disciples here. But a third option, and this is how I understand it, others believe that the we here refers to Himself together with the Father and the Spirit. That that's the testimony He's speaking of. And one reason, one main reason for believing that He's speaking of the Father and the Spirit is if you look down at verse 13, he says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. In other words, the emphasis of Jesus' point in this passage is that he has come down from the heavenly realm to reveal firsthand what he knows and has seen. And he does so in behalf of his Father who sent him and by the Spirit who is upon Him. His testimony is the testimony of the Father and the Spirit. And His point here is He is defending why His words and His doctrine are trustworthy and to be believed. He's the one who has come down from heaven. And He speaks of what He has seen and what He knows. 
Unlike Nicodemus, who's ignorant of the Scriptures and doesn't know what he's talking about, Christ is not ignorant of the things of which He speaks because He knows them and has seen them firsthand. This is what Matthew Henry says. He says, Christ spoke not upon hearsay, but upon the clearest evidence and therefore with the greatest assurance. What He spoke of God and of the invisible world, and of heaven and hell, and of the divine will concerning us, was what He knew and had seen. And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, and you, plural, do not receive our witness. Notice that to reject the Son is to reject the Father. To reject Christ's testimony is to reject the testimony of the Father because Christ is the testimony of the Father. And notice Jesus stresses their culpability here. I've mentioned this before, and we'll see it again. One, one big theme in John's Gospel is this issue, this emphasis on testimony and evidence. And here Jesus again brings that to the forefront, emphasizing His testimony, indicating that there is sufficient proof and reason to believe Christ's words. Uh, Nicodemus' problem is not a lack of credible testimony. The problem is they are not receiving the testimony because they don't want to receive the testimony. And that's true of sinners in every age. The heart of man doesn't change throughout history. The problem with man's rebellion is at the heart of his unbelief. If you're here and you are presently not receiving the Gospel as God's truth from heaven, the reason, even though you might say it is, the reason is not because God has failed to give you adequate reason to believe the Gospel. Rather, the reason lies in your own fallen heart's receptivity to the things of God. And truth be told, you would rather suppress the truth in unrighteousness and believe a lie Instead, because you haven't been born again. That is what you need is a new birth from heaven. Just like Nicodemus needs the new birth to make him alive. To bring him out of death and the darkness of sin that hates God and suppresses the truth that he knows. He needs the Spirit of God to make him alive so that he most willingly acquiesces to the testimony and evidence of Christ. Verse 12. John chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus says to him, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, let's be clear and understand what Jesus is and is not saying there. Jesus is not saying here that the subject matter of the kingdom of God and of the new birth is not heavenly subject matter. Okay? That's not his meaning. Rather, he's talking about his mode of communication. He's basically saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I have taken the great things of God, the mysteries of God, and I have explained them to you as a child. I have explained them to you in language like the new birth and the wind. He's saying that I have condescended my language to categories that you can understand, and yet they are still unclear to you. And he's saying, what, how would you believe if I told you heavenly things? He's saying, Nicodemus, how would you believe if I were to accommodate my speech to the true nature of these things? And as it were, speak in the tongues of angels. Notice it's implied that Christ could do that if He wanted For He Himself being God knows the mind of the Lord. And that is exactly why He is uniquely able to declare to us the things of God so that we might be saved. And that's what He goes on to say in the next verse. If you look at verse 13. He says, No one has ascended to heaven, but He who came down from heaven that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. He is declaring here His unique ability to make known to us sinners the will of God for our salvation. Notice first the negative. The all-encompassing negative with one, one exception. He says, no one has ascended into heaven 
And what he means by that phrase is that no one has penetrated the heavenly incomprehensible mysteries of God except God Himself. That's, that's the, the meaning of that phrase. And I emphasize that because some have used this text to deny that Old Testament saints went to heaven when they died. They just jump right, they ignore context and jump right into the middle of John 3 and say, hey, Jesus said no one has ascended into heaven. That must mean that Old Testament saints don't go to heaven or didn't go to heaven. But brothers and sisters, context is key when you're reading the Bible. He's not addressing that subject. He's addressing the subject of what qualifies him to speak of heavenly things and why his testimony is true. And what he's saying is that the Old Testament prophets, while they were mighty men, and while they spoke truly of God, none of them even ascended into heaven in this sense to comprehend fully the deep things of God. They wrote the Scriptures by divine inspiration, but not out of their own knowledge. But Christ here speaks of what He knows and has seen firsthand because heaven was and is His dwelling place. Notice the exception. No one has ascended into heaven but or except He who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. That's an incredible Christological verse. I mean, if regeneration and the new birth is a mystery that left Nicodemus' jaw on the floor, how much more this heavenly subject of the hypostatic union, of God becoming man. Jesus is declaring to Nicodemus that Nicodemus, the one you are speaking to in the flesh, can declare the things of God because only he has ascended into heaven, into the very mind of God, being God himself. And only He has come down to make it known to us. Notice, He had pre-existence as God prior to His earthly visit. Just like we saw in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yet, He calls Himself here a Son of Man. It's hard to imagine what Nicodemus was thinking as he heard these words. And notice, Jesus goes further and He says the Son of Man who is in heaven. Present tense. Now I know there's a variant there. You may or, depending on your translation, you may or may not have that um, last phrase, who is in heaven. And without getting into the debate of those issues and textual criticism and all of that, suffice it to say that it is a thoroughly orthodox saying to say of the God-man that He has both come down from heaven and is in heaven. Because in His humanity, His human nature, He is limited by space, but in His divinity, He is God and therefore omnipresent. And thus, He, he speaks of divine truth on earth. He speaks as an eyewitness to the glories of heaven and the deep things of God. Lastly, as we close out our exposition, in verses 14 and 15, he closes his discussion with Nicodemus by laying out plainly the truth that Nicodemus needs to believe. Verse 14 and 15. He says, And as Moses... Remember, he's talking to a teacher of Israel. Nicodemus, no doubt, would have been familiar with this story. He says, And as Moses... That is, he's giving an analogy... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is again condescending to Nicodemus' level. He's making plain to him in layman's terms the Gospel truth. He's referencing, Jesus is referencing Moses' final miracle. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 21. You might, you probably remember uh, reading through your Old Testament and your yearly reading. The people of Israel are again grumbling, not just against Moses, they're grumbling against God and his provision, and they are longing to return to Egypt. And the Lord, in anger and in judgment, sends serpents upon his people to 
bite his people, and many of them died. And so the people become convicted of their grumbling, and they beseech Moses, and they say to him, we have sinned against the Lord, pray to the Lord to take away the serpents. And what was the Lord's response? Moses prays for the people, and God responds by telling Moses to make a bronze serpent and to set it up, lift it up on a pole so that everyone who looked to that serpent who had been bitten would live. And it was just as God said. Everyone who looked to the serpent lived. That's a picture of the Gospel in the book of Numbers. The poison of the serpents is a picture of sin that has infected every man, woman, and child. And the just outcome of sin, if it is left unremedied, is death. As we learn from Adam in the garden. And not just physical death like the serpent's bite, but physical, spiritual, and eternal death if our sin is not remedied. But God, in His grace, makes an Old Testament Savior, if you will, for the Israelites who was made in the likeness of the serpent. The, The same One who sent the judgment and the plague is the One who provides the remedy. And it was by looking to God's gracious remedy that the people were saved from the judgment of God. And Christ is now saying to Nicodemus, just like that, Nicodemus, God has now given an even greater Savior. One who is heaven sent. One who has come down from heaven made in the likeness of sinful flesh to be lifted up. That is, lifted up upon the cross. Hanging between heaven and earth. Being shamed by men. Bearing the wrath of God as He bears the sins of His people. And He's telling Nicodemus, just like the serpent, whoever, whoever you are, it doesn't matter how spiritually darkened your mind presently is, whoever looks to that Savior and believes in the Son of Man will not perish, but have everlasting life. He will not see eternal death, but will enter into the glories of the Kingdom of God. And so my friend, if you're here If you understand anything, the command of God to you this morning is look by faith to the One who has been lifted up for sinners. Look to Christ who alone came as the Savior and substitute for sinners to stand in their place and bear the wrath that they deserved so that by trusting Him, our sins are given to His account and His righteousness is imputed to our account. That brings us now to our second section, doctrine deduced from our passage. Doctrine deduced. I have three things that I want to want to draw out from the passage this morning. Ways in which this passage instructs us both as Christians and together in our life in the church. I'm going to give you three. I'll give them as we go. Number one, and I apologize, I just couldn't find a way to make this title short. So you might have to just write in shorthand or something. Um, but number one, the first doctrine that is deduced from our passage is this. Holding an esteemed position such as teacher does not necessarily mean one is knowledgeable in divine things. And the converse of that is not having an esteemed position does not mean one is ignorant of divine things. Okay, is that long enough for you? So, having a position of teacher or something like it does not necessarily mean you're knowledgeable in divine things. And conversely, if you don't have that position, it doesn't make you ignorant of divine things. So here's Nicodemus. He's been elevated to one of the highest positions in Israel. He's a ruler and a teacher of the Jews, and yet he is ignorant of the Scriptures. And on the other hand, you've got Jesus who has no degrees, no formal training, no esteemed position, and He is full to the brim with spiritual insight. He is taking the teacher of Israel to school. In other words, human learning on its own is no guarantee that one has been taught by the Spirit of God. Now don't misunderstand me. For one who has the Spirit of God, 
Human learning and education can be greatly used by the Spirit. But human learning alone without the Spirit is the blind leading the blind. And this is very practical and important for the life of the Christian and the Christian church. I want to give you just four short ways that this truth touches down for us. So these are four sub-points under this doctrine. For one, this helps us from falling prey to the idea that only those who have letters behind their name can really understand the Bible. Sometimes, maybe many times, Christians have this idea that they that they ought not even to attempt to wade into the deep things of God because after all, if there are all these men with PhDs and whatever other letters behind their names, if they can't even agree, who am I to think that I can understand my Bible? This text should prove that that's wrong thinking. Uh, Think of the Bereans. That wasn't the, the attitude of the Bereans who searched the Scriptures themselves to see if these things were so. They clearly thought that they were able to come to God's Word and to understand it, even with no fancy degrees. Secondly, second sub-point, this is a danger we need to be aware of. If we are too enamored with letters and with people who are in esteemed positions, we can very easily, subtly give those teachers too much authority. As, as though, because they hold the position they hold, and because they have the training that they have, they must be infallible on all points of doctrine. And it makes us think that if, you know, if someone less educated and less well-known comes along and challenges them, well, certainly it must be the guy with letters who's right. right? Certainly the guy who doesn't have a degree can't be right at this particular point. That's that's not true. That doesn't follow, biblically speaking. Um, What what that means is that when someone... I I run into this sometimes when people don't really have an argument for why they're right. They just throw out, well, I've been studying the Bible for 30 years. Well, we should take that into consideration. But by no means does that simple fact mean that de facto they are the ones who are correct. Because I'm sure Nicodemus had studied his Bible for 30 years and yet was ignorant. Thirdly, third subpoint, and this is very relevant for our corporate life in the church, regarding those who we recognize as elders and deacons. Okay? There are men who are fresh out of seminary and they're zealous to get into a pulpit, and they have degrees far higher than the degree that I have. And yet they are men that I would not want to come within two miles of this pulpit or of our eldership even though they have more education. And on the flip side of that, there are men in our congregation who have zero formal training, but because of personal study and reading and communion with God, they have proved themselves to be fit for the office of teacher. And while they might not have any letters behind their names that vouch for that, their lives and their doctrine testify that this is a man who has been taught by the Spirit of God. And I think personally, I'm more of the Spurgeon camp on this, I think personally some churches put too much of an emphasis on formal education, and because of that, they put men into ministry who shouldn't be there just because they have letters and a degree, And at the same time, they exclude men from being in ministry who should be in ministry. I mean, Bunyan and Spurgeon are are shining examples of church history of men who had no formal training, and yet they turned the world upside down with their preaching and their books that they wrote. Fourth fourth sub-point on this first point of doctrine. And Christian, this touches down to your life. And it's somewhat of a tangential application Uh, or or doctrine, but I think you see the connection and why it's important to speak about it. It's important that we come back to this often. Don't confuse mere learning with godliness. Okay, Don't, Don't confuse mere learning with godliness. And I mean that as you assess others, but also as you in your own heart walk with God. Godliness includes learning. Right? We are to grow. We're commanded to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also remember that Paul says to Timothy, he speaks of those who are always learning but never come to a knowledge of the truth. 
We have to be aware of this, especially in the Reformed context in which we put a premium on the mind and on doctrine, which I'm not, I'm not budging on that at all. But we need to remember, godliness is not less than learning, but it is more than learning. And so, Christian, make sure that as you learn the truth, the truth is transforming you. Make sure that it's not just making your, your head huge while your heart and your will and your life shrivels, but rather make sure that the truth of God is conforming you to the image of Christ. Making you more humble, more obedient, more thankful. That brings us, brings us to the, the second point of doctrine. Second point of doctrine. We are taught to admire the great height and depth of the doctrine of Christ and to be thankful for God's condescension in Christ. Okay, We are taught here both to admire the great height and depth of the truths of the Gospel, but also to be thankful for the condescension of Christ. And I'm getting this from verse 12. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Paul says to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. Matthew Henry said this. He said, the things of the Gospel are heavenly things. And then listen to this. Out of the reach of the inquiries of human reason and much more out of reach of its discoveries. Now, when Matthew Henry says that, he doesn't mean that we can't discover the Gospel truth at all, but he means that the mysteries of God and of His workings in the Gospel are infinitely greater than we know, and we only know them as they are revealed to us. I hope you realize that. We, we know something of salvation and what has taken, taken place, but I hope we don't think we know all of it as God knows it. I mean, Paul kind of alludes to that, doesn't he? In, in Romans 11, in his doxology, where, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Brothers and sisters, when when it comes to things like the Trinity and the Incarnation and Christ's human obedience and His suffering in His humanity upon the cross and the regenerating work of the Spirit of God and so many other things, these are things that we have seen and known in part. But we must confess that we only know in part. The doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Gospel is has a height and a depth that no human can search and discover. But that's this, that brings us to the second aspect of this doctrine. I'll, I'll just put it in Matthew Henry's words. To acknowledge with thankfulness the condescension of Christ that He is pleased to suit the manner of the Gospel revelation to our capacities and to speak to us as children. That's exactly what Christ is doing with Nicodemus here. Christ knows our frame and He condescends to us to break the bread of life in a way and into pieces that we can digest. And that's a mercy of God. Now that's not to say that there are difficult things to understand in the Bible. I mean, Peter says of Paul that there are some things Paul has written that are hard to understand. But Christ has made the Gospel revelation to us so accessible that a young child can grasp it and believe it. Right? You must be born again. Our children can understand that. The the Spirit is like the wind. He's powerful and He blows where He wills. A child can understand that. Jesus' analogy of Moses here, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... And all the Israelites who looked at it and trusted in God's promise were saved. So too, that's how we must be saved from sin. By looking to Christ. A child can understand that. Children, let me speak to you. It's been a while since I've directly spoken to you. I know that sometimes I talk about things from the pulpit on Sundays that are probably hard for you to understand. 
And if it makes you feel any better, a lot of times the things I'm talking about are hard for me to understand. Because all of us are like children in comparison with God. But guys, listen to me. Okay, listen up. The heart of the Bible, the very centerpiece of the Bible, and the most important truth for you to ever believe in this life is as simple as this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came for young sinners. He came for old sinners. He came for smart sinners. He came for not-so-smart sinners. And it's my prayer, even as Gary prayed this morning, as just as it is the prayer of your parents, that each and every one of you would live believing that Jesus lived and died to save me from my sins. And you can grow from there as a Christian. But at the start, that's all you need to know. Is I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And I'll say this to the adults. You need that kind of bite-sized gospel as well. We as adults think we're so much smarter and we can get beyond the things of the gospel. That's, That's not true. The other things are the underpinnings that uphold the simple truth of the Gospel. You need to be reminded that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Like John Newton, a brother was talking about this, uh, this this week, as he got old and he was losing his memory. Imagine a great theologian, all of a sudden you can't remember all the technical stuff. And what he said is, I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Christian, isn't it a mercy and wonderful that Christ has come not to confuse us, not to dazzle us with things that are beyond us and incomprehensible to us, but to speak to us in our own capacity and reveal God in the way of salvation plainly and simply. That brings us to the third point of doctrine. The third point of doctrine. This is the shortest title, so I've I've made up for my longer ones. Thirdly, the free offer of the gospel. The free offer of the gospel. You think, I mean, Christ's preaching and teaching is a model for us to emulate. So are the apostles. Jesus has an amazing way of talking about the sovereignty of God. He can say in one breath, Nicodemus, you must be born again, and the only way that's going to happen is if the Spirit sovereignly decides to give that to you. And yet, in the very next verse, he emphasizes that whoever wills to come to Christ may come. You, you read on your own, you can read the end of Matthew chapter 11, right before chapter 12, and Jesus prays out loud publicly. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, talking about the gospel, from the wise and the understanding, and you have revealed them to babes. And then he goes on to say, that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him to. That's sovereignty. That's election. That's sovereign grace. And in the very next verse, Jesus turns to the crowds and He says, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what we call the free offer of the Gospel. And we need to ardently defend it. Because it is not in the least in contradiction to the doctrines of election and predestination and the new birth. One of the most dangerous things that I seek to guard against with people who are new to Reformed theology is they're coming to these things for the first time and they're seeing rightly God's absolute sovereignty in the redemption of a sinner. And that's good. But then they begin to do bad logic with the Bible that doesn't follow the Bible's conclusions and examples, and they begin to reason with themselves that, well, if God has a particular chosen people that He's going to save, then I should just offer Christ to those people. That's wrong. And that's not the way Christ or the apostles did evangelism. That's a form of what we call hyper-Calvinism, not biblical robust Calvinism. Because here's the thing. We don't know who the elect are. God has not given us a list of everyone that we talk to that we can say, what's your name? And okay, you're on the list here. So I'll preach the Gospel to you. Or you're not, and so there's no use in me bothering. We we don't have that. 
And therefore, there is no condition a sinner must meet in order to be offered the hope of Christ and the hope of the Gospel. We don't have to try to discern signs of election. Because guess what? The sign of election is that someone believes the Gospel. And how will they believe upon Him whom they have not heard? That's getting the cart before the horse. We offer Christ indiscriminately. No matter how spiritually blind someone may presently be, we offer Christ to them. Just like Nicodemus offered himself, or excuse me, just like Christ offered himself here to Nicodemus. No amount of sin should cause us to hesitate offering Christ because there's no amount of sin that proves someone is not among the elect. And you know how we know that? Think of 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul lists all sorts of damning sins. And then Paul turns around and says to the Christians at Corinth, such were some of you. What if Paul had withheld the Gospel from them on account of you guys are too bad of sinners? Certainly you guys can't be among the elect. No, instead, He offered Christ freely to them and they who were spiritually dead were made alive through the preaching of the Gospel. And God by His Spirit made them new creations. Christian, as freely as that bronze serpent was held up and offered to all Israel, Christ is offered to every sinner. And if sinners refuse to look and refuse to come, their blood is on their own heads. But for our part, let none perish on account of us being stingy with the Gospel. That brings us to our application as we come to a close this morning. Our application. I have one thing that I want to say to you if you're here and you're an unbeliever, and three things that I want to say to you if you're a Christian based on each of our points of doctrine. First of all, let me speak to you if you're here and you're outside of Christ. You're not presently believing the Gospel and trusting Christ to save you from your sins. This is the command of the risen Christ to you in all His grace and compassion and mercy to sinners. Look to the Lord and be saved. It is a wonderful analogy of faith that Christ gives in that serpent illustration. When the Israelites were dying of the bites of the serpents, God's remedy to them to be saved from His judgment was not to tell them, do a bunch of things to earn My favor. Rather, they were saved by looking to the remedy that God provi provided. By trusting in God's Word of promise. And so, sinner, look to Christ by faith. Don't delay. He has been lifted up on a cross and He says to you presently by His Word, look to Me all the ends of the earth and be saved. There is no reason or excuse to remain unbelieving. Christ has come down in the flesh to reveal heavenly things to us in a way that we can understand. He has made clear the simple Gospel and we are accountable to believe in Him. Let me say this, it doesn't matter right now if you grasp how the sovereignty of God and all those things relate to your responsibility to believe the Gospel. Okay? A sinner is not saved because he can explain those things. Neither is a sinner saved because he can explain or understands Reformed theology. A sinner is saved because he looks to Christ. Just like the thief on the cross. I mean, honestly, how much do we think the thief on the cross understood? He was saved in his last minutes knowing little more than that the man hanging next to me on the middle cross said that I could come into his kingdom. And so it is with you, sinner. doesn't matter how much you know. All you need to know is that you are a great sinner and that Christ came to live and to die and to rise again to save sinners. And you need to trust Him. Put down the hostility of your pride. I know it's a humbling thing to have to admit 
looking into the mirror and before a holy God, I am a worthless wretch. But at the end of the day, that is all any of us are. doesn't matter how cleaned up we might make ourselves look on the outside. Inside, we are full of dead men's bones and we stink. And Christ in His mercy comes to us full of purity and full of holiness and full of righteousness. And He says, sinner, exchange garments with Me. That's what the King of Heaven is offering you. And don't let your pride keep you forever shut out of the Kingdom of Heaven. But come in willingly with a head hanging low, ashamed of what you are, but a heart that boasts in what Christ is for me to bring me to God. Christian, three applications, one based, or each based on one of our doctrinal points. Number one, Christian, make sure your knowledge of Christ is a saving knowledge. Listen to me here. The devil can be very subtle. Nicodemus was not only ignorant of the Scriptures, he had the Scriptures and he was wrong about the Scriptures, okay? Okay? Now that's one way that the devil deceives is he just leads people to all sorts of false interpretations of the Bible. But the deception of the devil can be even more subtle than that. In that, someone can even have an accurate knowledge about Christ and yet not actually truly know Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, as he he describes his uttermost goal in life, he says, forgetting what lies behind and striving towards what lies ahead. I press on to make it my own. Why? That I might know Christ. Make sure your knowledge of Christ is an experiential knowledge. A trusting knowledge. A loving knowledge. Not just a bare clinical compartmentalization of facts. There are unbelievers who study the Bible. That doesn't save them. Even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder because they don't know God savingly. Christian, examine yourself. It's it's been said that the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian is often the distance of 18 inches from the head to the heart. And as you continue in the school of Christ, make sure your goal is not just knowledge as an end in itself, but a knowledge of the One. The Person who is wisdom and knowledge and righteousness and sanctification. Number two, application. Marvel at God's condescension and grace to you. Christian, give give God thanks for the simplicity of the Gospel as it's revealed in the Bible. Christ has not come into the world to dazzle us with things too high for us to leave us bereft of any saving knowledge. He has come to actually save His people by revealing Himself to us. That we might know Him, even if it is according to our own level of comprehension. That though there are high things, He has broken the Gospel down into bite-sized pieces for us so that anyone can have a saving knowledge of Christ. Not everyone is going to be at the same level of theological maturity, but the glorious truth of the Gospel is that both the brand new Christian and the greatest theologian on earth both have the same powerful Christ. So that even if we feel at times overwhelmed by how much we do not know about God and how much we do not know about His ways, we can always fall back on those two simple truths. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. From the greatest theologian to the babiest Christian, that is the hope of the Christian. Thirdly, last application, Christian, hold out an available Christ to the world. Hold out an available Christ to the world. Make sure not to make the Gospel sound like it isn't for someone. We need to understand these distinctions. The terms of the Gospel are exclusive. We have no right to change those. That it is solely through Christ, His death and resurrection. And so the terms of the Gospel are exclusive, but the 
offer of the gospel is free and indiscriminate. Mark that. The gospel is not for the clean. It is not for the moral. It is for sinners. Every sinner. And Christ is magnified in sinners of all stripes coming to the same Savior through the same gospel. We, we saw a perfect summary of that in our testimonies last Sunday afternoon. Different ways of life, different patterns of sin, and yet all of them coming to the same Christ through the same Gospel. The Gospel is for the one who even last night or this morning may have committed great sins. Heinous sins. Sometimes I think as believers that that it would be scandalous to offer grace to someone in the wake of their great sin. But the truth is, that's exactly what the Gospel is for. In one sense, there are no small sins. And so every sinner who's ever believed the Gospel, in a sense, believed it in the wake of great sin in the sight of a holy God. If they reject it, their blood be on their own heads. But Christ does not tell us, tell them about My grace once they've cleaned up a bit. He says, tell them in the midst of their filth and sin that if they believe, they will be made whiter than snow. Jesus says to the sinner, come to Me. He doesn't say after a while. He says, come to Me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Spurgeon said that if sinners will perish, let them perish with our arms around their feet and their ankles, pleading with them not to go to hell. Christian, let us be instructed and transformed by the living Word of God. Let us now pray together and ask God to apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, write Your Word upon our hearts, we pray. What, it, what has been lacking in, our, in my exposition and so many things that could be said better, so many things that could be opened up, I pray for Your Spirit to minister to each and every heart. Lord, bring great conviction to the unconverted. We pray that You would convince them of their sins and then lead to Jesus' blood. Lord, cause them to shudder with fear of what it will mean to stand before a holy God clothed in their own supposed righteousness that is filled with sin and iniquity and evil thoughts and deeds, things that their consciences know they are ashamed of. We pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit they would then look to the remedy that You have given in Christ Your Son. Cause their hearts to leap with joy as they behold for the first time a merciful Savior. One who is Himself without sin and one who ministers to the sinner. Father, we thank You that we have a high priest who is tempted in every way as we have been and yet came out prevailing without sin so that He can be our righteousness and so that He can supply to us never-ending supplies of grace and help in our time of need. Father, cause us who are Your people to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, worthy of the Gospel, Lord, we pray that our lives would be more of a reflection of holiness, of devotion. Lord, cause us not to play fast and loose with You. We pray, Lord, for those who are straying or have strayed. Perhaps, Lord, through the deceitfulness of sin have given in to temptations. We pray, Lord, that You'd bring back the wayward sinner. Lord, Your children who perhaps have lived afar from You for some time, who've grown cold in their hearts. Lord, do the work that only You can do. Revive us as Your church. Lord, we pray for our unsaved family, our unsaved friends, those that we work with. Be merciful. Give them the new birth. Cause us to have the words of Christ upon our lips. We pray that we would not be ashamed of the Gospel 
knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation. Draw near to us, Father. Bless the remainder of our Lord's Day as our people spend time in fellowship together. We pray that You would help us to be little Christs to one another. That we would have the Word of Christ dwelling within us richly and that we would speak that Word to one another. Help us to grow in the Christian life. Help us to help one another. Help us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. By Your Spirit, work all these graces in us, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.